Farmers are the heartbeat of rural America. Congress recently invested $20 billion in America's farmers and ranchers, focusing on conservation practices and profits for future generations. Today, these funds are at risk. You're squawking over $20 billion. That USDA program, it's investment into the future for everybody. If the funding was eliminated, it could hurt farms and families. Tell Congress, protect this generational investment in the Farm Bill. Learn more at investinourland.org. Paid for by Invest in Our Land. Hello, listeners. It is Thursday, February 2nd, 2017. Welcome to the Politico Nerdcast. I'm your host, Scott Bland, and we have a lot to talk about this week. We have a new uh, Supreme Court nominee. We have uh, a lot of protests going on around the country about new activity uh, from the Trump administration. And, uh, yep, we're still moving cabinet officials through the Senate. So we're going to dive into all of that. Just before we do, a couple quick notes. We would love to have you subscribe, rate us, and even if you want, write a written review of the Nerdcast on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please send us your questions. Uh, if you'd like one answered on uh, the air, please email us at nerdcast at politico.com. All right, let's dive into the numbers that mattered this week. The first one is 49, and that is the age of uh, the nominee to be the next associate justice on the Supreme Court, Neil Gorsuch, who was put forward by President Trump this week. We'll talk about why that matters and what his prospects are for affecting the court and affecting uh, possibly the the way the Senate works this week. Uh, Our second data point is uh, 35 or 35 plus, and that's at least the number of congressional Republicans who have come out and criticized the president's executive order on immigration and refugees that was issued late last week, sparking big protests over the weekend. And our third and final data point this week is uh, zero. That is the GOP's margin for error on confirmation for one of Trump's nominees. That's Betsy DeVos, his pick to lead the education department, who suffered some Republican defections. Uh, so we're going to talk about all that and more this week. Now let's uh, let's get right to it and uh, introduce our all-star panel. Hello and welcome, Nancy Cook. Oh, thanks for having me, Scott. Eliana Johnson, welcome back. Hey, Scott. Hello, Charlie Mutessian. Hey, Scott. Ken Vogel. Hey. And Eli Stokels. Hello, Scott. All right, let's jump into data point number one. That's 49. That's the age of Colorado Judge Neil Gorsuch, Donald Trump's nominee to the Supreme Court, uh, who, because he's so young is is poised to shape the court for a generation to come. So Eliana, tell us a little bit about uh, the man who is likely to become the next uh, Supreme Court justice. How how did he get here and what can we expect from him? I was going to say that number 49 turns out to have been uh, very important to some of the uh, onlookers of this nomination process because it means uh, just given average life expectancies. By the way, Supreme Court watching, uh, people are very morbid when they talk about this, talk a lot about <laughs> life expectancy. Um, but uh, yeah, that was, he, he's quite young um, and he will be, uh, if confirmed, the first um, the first person to sit on the court with a justice for whom he clerked, and that's Anthony mm. Kennedy. But he's uh He's a mainstream and yet highly respected uh, conservative pick who distinguished himself uh, during the selection process by uh, the concision, clarity, and strength of his writing. And that was really viewed by uh, the, the Federalist Society, which uh, 
Trump sort of outsourced the selection process to them um, as something that they wanted a fitting replacement for Scalia. And Scalia was also renowned um, not only for his uh, the, the unprecedented speaking role he took on the court, but for um, the strength of his writing. And so he's really seen so, uh, by conservatives as a, as a fitting successor to Scalia. Somebody re- referred to him as Scalia 2.0. Um, and so I think in his bearing, he's uh, he's been a bit quieter, but in his writing, he's, um, he's considered a very forceful and um, somebody who uh, is a deserving replacement for uh, for the late Justice Scalia. One of the things I thought that was interesting in the conversation about this is that, you know, there's a new justice, but because he's replacing Scalia, a conservative replacing a conservative, the balance is not really changing. But now this is the second consecutive uh, justice be, being appointed with uh, kind of the explicit goal in mind of being able to sway Anthony Kennedy, the swing vote on the court, uh, which I, I, I thought was pretty interesting. And the, the previous one being Elena Kagan, uh, for you know the former Obama administration solicitor general, and um, yeah, I, I, ju- I just thought that was a very interesting kind of look at at the way things things might look on the court going forward. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, always some question with these with these Supreme Court nominees as to how predictable, how much the president who nominates them actually knows about how they're going to rule. We've seen time and again. Kennedy is a great example. Sandra Day O'Connor was another. Uh, John Roberts uh, is is right now uh, one who conservatives feel like maybe they didn't know the full extent of his commitment to conservative values, and he's a little bit more of a free agent than I think some had uh, concerns about. In this case, I think you see conservatives who believe that he is one of them, uh, and, and there's not a potential for him to be a wild card. But you just never know, and on some of the key issues, he doesn't have like a super strong track record. Campaign finance reform is one that we always look at when, with Kennedy, Sandra Day O'Connor in particular, uh, as as uh, one where a lot of these battles continue to be fought and there are test cases that are working their way through the judicial system. And there are conservatives who are looking to challenge particular pieces, whether it's the contribution limits or disclosure or uh, soft money and whether parties can raise them. And he only has one case that people are pointing to and they're sort of seeing what they want in it. So it was a case in which he uh, ruled with the majority, striking down a Colorado law that had lower contribution limits for minor parties than for major parties. That's sort of like an ill-conceived idea. You could see that, you know, <laughs> being sort of a, you know, a, a, um, a, a question that would, uh, like an equal protection question. Um, and so he ruled with the majority in striking that down. And so uh, liberals are looking at that and they're being like, look, he struck down contribution limits. But they're also like, yeah, this is not a great law. And conservatives are looking at it and thinking like, oh, he's, he's one of them. But like it could be, you know, I don't think there is a strong track record there that would allow anyone to, to, to sort of foresee how he's going to rule on that uh, particular issue. Well, you could say the same thing on guns. You know, he himself is an avid um, outdoorsman and is into skiing and fishing um, and hunting but there, he doesn't have as much of a track record on the Second Amendment. I mean, I feel like conservatives feel confident in him, but there isn't a huge body of case law on that. But one area where he does have a track record that really makes conservatives happy is that he's very anti-abortion and has been really clear on some cases on that. And I feel like um, particularly for Vice President Pence, that is a huge issue. And um, a lot of you know conservatives were originally quite worried about Trump for that reason. They didn't feel like his views on abortion were where they wanted him to be. And so Gorsuch really um, fits that mold for them. 
So where where does this move from here? Now, I mean, obviously it moves into the Senate, and and the big question there is, you know, to to what extent can Democrats play a role in uh, in this process? Uh, obviously, there's the there's the sixty vote. Uh, filibuster threshold that still exists for Supreme Court nominees, but there's also, as we've learned in the very recent past, when Democrats controlled the Senate, there's a 51 vote threshold to change those rules. So, um, Eliana, where where do things you know kind of kind of stand in that battle at this point, and could we could we end up seeing a really big change to the way the Senate operates as a result of this nomination? Yeah, uh, two quick points. The first um, about Gorsuch's views on abortion. I think were. Uh, constitutional conservatives to talk about it, they would say, we, we don't know what Gorsuch's personal opinion on abortion is. I think most legal scholars, by and large, think Roe, um, the reasoning of Roe v. Wade was faulty. And we do know that Gorsuch uh, shares that view, but that doesn't necessarily um, equate to his personal opposition uh, to abortion or support for it. So I think it's, it's an important distinction to make. But um, on the Democrats' opposition uh, to to this or their reaction to the appointment, Chuck Schumer has um, it was one of the first people to come out and say they're going to oppose this nomination um, with a with a lot of energy. However, he's uh, there's several members of his caucus who have come out and said they're not going to filibuster this nomination. I do think, and Ted Cruz uh, has come out and said he supports um, invoking the nuclear option, which would uh, reduce the Senate from a 60-vote threshold to get him confirmed to a 50-vote threshold uh, for confirmation, which is what Harry Reid did for cabinet nominees. We're seeing that uh, play out and right now. And judicial nominees. Yeah. Uh, yep, except for Supreme Court nominees. Right. So uh, that would radically change the way the Senate operates and uh, certainly mean that uh, the parties do not have to work as hard uh, at all to get uh, – you know, a governing majority uh, and work across party lines. So I, I, I certainly think that should happen. Trump has said he supports that as well, which I think is hugely important given the deference that Republicans uh, want to grant him in, in his first uh, 100 days. Nancy. But I do think that they're going to baby step their way into using the nuclear option. I mean, Sean Spicer, who's the White House press secretary, said today during his press conference that they're really he was really blatant about it in a way that you don't always hear. He said, oh, we're really going to target red state Democrats on this pick. And so I feel like they're going to try to pick off Democrats before they go that route, because I don't I'm not convinced that Majority Leader Mitch McConnell necessarily wants to get rid of the filibuster. And already there are some signs that Democrats can be picked off. Um, you know, Senator Joe Manchin um, of West Virginia met with Gorsuch uh, the day after he was uh, picked and in his office, and that seemed to go well. And so it does seem like, uh, you know, they're going to try that first. Ma- I mean, this idea that, that somehow, like, the, any, you know, controversial Trump, uh, you know, initiative or nominee that they're going to get, you know, the, the Republicans are going to be able to use uh, you know, the, the popularity of Trump to somehow cow these. I mean, we look at like it's not just red state Democrats. We're looking particularly at this universe of 10 Democrats who are up for reelection in 2018 in states that Trump won. We keep on talking the, about this. The, like, the, the nerdcast number <laughs> of yeah, the week every week. Yeah, yeah. But it's it's such a key number. But I mean, I, I just don't see those folks as, as I think 
they would face more pressure, frankly, if they if they were seen as cowing to pressure from the Trump administration and from Republicans on whether it's the Supreme Court nominee or whether it's an infrastructure spending plan or whatever, uh, if they were seen as like siding with Trump, they would face more pressure from the left where all the energy in, in, in the Democratic Party is around just strident opposition to Trump that they could potentially see themselves facing backlash from like this nascent sort of liberal Tea Party type of sentiment and maybe even finding themselves primaried in 2018 before they even get to a general election. And in fact, you know, Manchin and Tester, John Tester of Montana are really good examples of that already. I mean, we've seen on abortion, they're being pressured from both sides already. And in fact, you know, we've seen both of them come out and say um, that it's... uh, you know, it's it's ludicrous for pressure groups to 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 be be pushing them on this because there was never a chance of of them getting a you know a, a pro-choice judge out of the Trump administration. And but you know, at the same time, there's all this energy on on the left right now that's that's uh, really you know filling up the phones and and you know picketing on the doorstep of a lot of these offices. I was going to say I can't believe Ken didn't mention the 30 outside groups and all the money that are right. pushing for <laughs> uh, for Gorsuch's confirmation. Uh, certainly, I think it's you know we do see with all the sort of unprecedented nature and all the all the sort of things that, that are happening in the early days of the Trump administration that we see is just so crazy and off the wall. This is kind of like people, th- this fits into the expected conventional battle lines and people are kind of going to their corners because it's the Supreme Court and that's the way it works. And so it's like a little bit of a little bit of like normalcy in Trump's Washington, uh, you know, but with the possible exception, as you noted, Scott, of uh, this this uh, weird story about them encourage the Trump administration encouraging the other uh, prospective nominee Hardiman to to drive to make it appear as if he was driving to in DC. the general direction of Washington, right, 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 yeah. um, and you know. And look at all the other stuff going on. It's like very, the, the Supreme Court battle lines are like rather sort of conventional as compared to like Trump's calls with foreign leaders, say, where he's like, you know, berating the uh, Mexican president and the uh, uh, Australian president over uh, various things and, and having the, the the transcripts and the substance of those, of those uh, sort of confrontational calls leak out. I mean, that something that raised a lot of eyebrows and is sort of more in keeping with what we expect from Trump's Washington. Yeah, we can get we're well we are going to get a lot more into that later, but yeah, I, the I mean everyone's really lining up in their corner, you know, Republican senators were ready the night of, you know, with fulsome praise for for Gorsuch and uh, you know, all the advocacy groups as you said have lined up kind of about where you'd expect and as you said Eliana, the money is flowing freely now into, you know, TV ads and some of these uh, 2018 Senate states and, uh, you know, advocacy work on, on, on both sides. So I was told by a Republican Senate chief of staff that uh, Mitch McConnell had explicitly told uh, Republican senators before the nomination was announced that he wanted them to flood the airways uh, with media appearances because he really wanted them to get out and define this fight before Democrats were able to do so. And I think that coupled with the enormous amount of money that there was an advertising blitz that went up supporting Gorsuch's confirmation and the fact that he's a pretty mild mannered guy. Um, it's going to be difficult for Democrats to portray him as, uh, you know, some sort of threat to the nation. Um, he also had support from an uh, Obama solicitor general, and the rollout went 
pretty well. So one of the challenges, I think, for Democrats, for Chuck Schumer in particular, is, is has been and will continue to be which fights to pick, which are going to rally their base and which are going to be the most fruitful fights um, when uh, Republicans have a congressional majority and uh, technically hold the executive branch, because I think it's difficult to uh, to shove Trump in the Republican box. Nancy? Yeah, I think Eliana makes a great point that Democrats do have to pick uh, which battle they want to fight. But, you know, it was interesting this week. There's just so much sort of intra-party Republican problems at this point um, that the Gorsuch uh, rollout was sort of the highlight of the week for the Trump presidency. But the backdrop against all of that was this week has been, a, there have been a ton of problems for them with the immigration and the refugee ban rollout. There was like dominated like five or six days of the news cycle even after the Supreme Court pick. You know, corporate America is furious about that. There are Republicans are trying to like rebrand Obamacare and say that it's not repeal and replace, it's repair and replace. I mean, there's all these other things where the Republican Party is uh, sort of internally can't quite get it together. That's actually uh, kind of segues nicely into our next data point, Nancy. And that number is 35 or 35 plus. And that's the number of congressional Republicans who have come out and criticized President Trump's executive order on immigration and refugees issued late last week. Uh, very late last week, actually. It was, uh, you know, as, as the week was ending on Friday. Um, and, you know, the order banning uh, uh, travel from uh, seven, seven countries, banning refugees, uh, uh, especially from Syria, um, sparked massive protests at, at airports and kind of major metro areas over the weekend. So, Nancy, what's the current status of, of the order and kind of the outcry against it? So the current status of the order was on Tuesday night, the White House tweaked it a little bit, given um, the multi-day uh, terrible news cycle. Or I'm sorry, not Tuesday night, last night, Wednesday night, um, tweaked it so that it exempts um, green card holders. And there was, you know, they really emphasized that they weren't changing it. The executive order still stood. But this was just a little tweak. But really, it was in response to this major outcry that really dominated, you know, five or six days of the news cycle. And you had everyone from Democrats and liberals upset to the business community that was absolutely horrified by this. Uh, you know, Amazon and Expedia, just as two examples, have joined a lawsuit or a legal challenge that the Washington State Attorney General has filed to challenge this. There have been uh, more than 13 lawsuits filed to challenge this. Um, and so it's just really upset a lot of people. And it caused chaos, too, because the federal agencies weren't informed. Um, you know, the Customs and Border Patrol people didn't know how to actually implement it. And so even just the practical logistics of how do you go about doing this, uh, you know, just dominated the news cycle and caused havoc for people. Yeah, and I think there's no doubt that the rollout was just botched. Even even defenders of the executive order, I'm reading a headline right now on National Review, Trump's order on refugees, mostly right on substance, wrong on rollout. Well, yeah, you think? It's almost <laughs> like there's a reason why you have like lawyers and subject matter experts involved in the formulation of policy on the front end before you roll something out, as opposed to just rolling it out. I mean, everything from the protests, I mean, the protests were going to protest anyway, but the ACLU managing to get that stay on the deportation of folks who are already in route, like you can't give a heads up. And Trump said, well, if I would have given a heads up, all these bad people would have come ahead of time. It's just not the way it works. And yet another example of how some some critics, again, on the right, even including the Wall Street Journal editorial board, have referred to the Trump White House in its early days 
as amateur hour. Well, and it's emblematic also. Our White House team, I think there were four bylines on the story, had a great story today on Thursday about how like the, the massive number of leaks that are plaguing the administration already is affecting how they're, how they're acting and, and how they're kind of behaving in official actions in terms of like the drafting of things like this. It's a very tight circle, right, Nancy? Yeah, it's a tight, tiny circle of people who Trump is listening to, like Steve Bannon, Reince Priebus, Jared Kushner. Um, Don McCann, who's his lawyer, but who has an expertise in campaign finance, not necessarily all these policy issues. And so what you're seeing again and again is that this small circle of people are the people making policy, and they're not doing in consultation with policy experts, with the agencies that have to roll this out, with congressional leaders even. Um, and you know we're just seeing them kind of make policy on the fly, which is what they did during the transition, but it's a little bit different now. But also, let's not forget that there's a certain kind of Game of Thrones element to this, to the uh, <laughs> inner circle, you know? I mean, it's not the most even-keeled crew that's close to it. I prefer the uh, Lord of the Flies <laughs> metaphor there. And in fact, we, uh, actually, Alex Eisenstadt, our colleague, school, right? Um, our colleague, Alex Eisenstadt, and I uh, have been talking to some sources, and they use that that uh, metaphor or that comparison frequently, Lord of the Flies, because it's not so much like factions. Game of Thrones is like factions, you know? Right. Uh, this is like every person for themselves. <laughs> there's an element of that, and there's just an element of like a, non, a certain non-traditional approach. So, you know, I, I said like they didn't consult with uh, subject matter experts. In fact, our own Rachel Bain had a story uh, showing that, in fact, senior staffers on the House Judiciary Committee helped Donald Trump's top aides draft the executive order. Uh, so that you know, that's an example of them reaching out, but not in the traditional way. Like that's not how you get buy-in from the Hill. You don't go to like top staffers on one committee. You go to the actual members. You go to your own secretary of the the, the relevant agency. And the the fact that they haven't done that and instead look for like just you know folks who are like loyalists or, or sympathetic on a given uh, you know subject area to help them sort of outside of the normal chain of command that's going to cause problems and it has already in this case but here's the thing though uh, you know when you when you look at the way they're operating um, they said they wanted to uh, they wanted to change everything in Washington they really have blown up everything and you know it, it tells you a little something that they feel that comfortable they feel they have that strong of a mandate to not just change the way Washington operates but to blow it up entirely in a way that no one's ever seen cutting different departments and agencies out of the loop i mean everything this white house is doing is marks a dramatic radical departure from the way things have operated in the past i mean i think you're uh, that's one way to look at it i think that's a very charitable generous way to look at it that this is like an intentional thing there certainly is an element of that that they are like just plowing aggressively through their checklist of their top priorities and doing it without a whole lot of consultation. And maybe it is uh, because they want to they change the way Washington works, or maybe it's just they don't know how this typically works. You have to look at some of the things that happen, uh, some of the sort of backlash side effects on the executive order and think, uh, if they put a little more thought into it and done things a little more traditionally, it would still would be an untraditional approach, but they might have had better results. You know, the, the circus music plays, the, the clowns come out in the car and they all pile out. That's definitely at work here. But what I'm saying is there's also sort of a broader design at work, like a huge middle finger to everyone in Washington, which is essentially the mandate they got in a lot of ways. I mean, we've known for so long that uh, congressional disapproval ratings are in the toilet. We know that, you know, a a Americans think so, uh, have such low regard for the way Washington operates for both for the major parties, 
uh, for everything. And so now they finally ha- they they finally have this tribune in 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 uh, the character of Donald Trump, and the Trump people certainly feel that, you know, and and that I think is really what's animating this this huge departure from what we expect. Charlie, I want to return in, in just a second to what you what you were just uh, saying about the mandate. But first, Nancy? Yeah, I just wanted to add quickly that I feel like making policy on the fly, you know, as Charlie talked about and blowing up Washington, it is really um, emboldening this big uh, resistance to the Trump presidency. I mean, we saw the, the, the Women's March the day after the inauguration, which had huge numbers across the country and more so than the inauguration. And then this past Saturday, you know, you sort of thought, okay, well, that's like an initial thing. But then this past Saturday, as soon as the immigration and refugee ban was announced, people across the country were also protesting. And a lot of people were at airports. So I think that this has really, uh, you know, given a lot of people a kind of a target to protest. For sure. Yeah. I mean, there's absolutely been huge energy uh, on this. And yet, you know, Charlie, it's been interesting to look at some of the polling that has come out on the uh, the refugee order, the, the executive order, some of the other aspects of the Trump administration, the polling has been kind of all over the place, right? It's not clear whether or not some of this stuff is actually broadly unpopular. Yeah. And I mean, there are a couple uh, forces at work here. And first, you know, one, one thing we talked about before was the idea, do they think they have a mandate? And, you know, is there a mandate? I mean, clearly they don't have a mandate. They, they couldn't even win a majority of the vote. So how can uh, they lost the popular vote? So how can you ever uh, assert that you have a mandate. But having said that, at the same time, like when you look at the polls, uh, it reflects a very different reality than uh, I think is is widely held in, in uh, you know, metropolitan America, or at least certainly in this town. Uh, the numbers for Trump, you know, his when you take a look at his, the, the polling that measures his popularity, whether it's approval or favorability, uh, you know, it's not great. By historical standards, he's really falling behind. Uh, he got no honeymoon whatsoever. There's deep polarization surrounding him. And there's lots of folks that hate his guts and, and will probably for, for four years. But he is not uh, as wild. He and his policies are not as wildly unpopular as you uh, might think. When you take a look at his approval ratings, and his favorability ratings. Now, keep in mind, there's a, di- a distinction between the two, as I know you guys know, but we should explain. When someone's approval ratings are measured, that is a uh, a gauge of the person's performance. Favorability is more akin to likability. So you're able to, to measure favorability throughout the election, and people just didn't like him that much. His favorability ratings were always underwater. Now, here's what's interesting about him now. He's still very unpopular. His favorability ratings are still underwater, but the approval ratings are different. They're not tracking. So the favorability is lagging behind approval, which That's the opposite of what happened to President with, Obama. It's the right? exact opposite. It's a mirror image of Obama, who was more popular than his policies. Now what we're seeing with Trump is there's some evidence that his policies and performance so far are more popular than he is. So in other words, like if I was explaining to my kids, trying to break it down to them, I would say, yeah, well, uh, America kind of thinks their president is a jerk, but they also uh, like some of the things he's doing. And that's the really unusual thing. And that's surprising to me. I mean, it's really early because we've only been able to do approval ratings for two weeks because you can only do approval ratings once a president is in office. But that is an interesting phenomenon. And then there's one other phenomenon that I would point out that is really equally fascinating and that I'm trying to learn a little bit more about now that uh, actually Steve Shepard, our polling guru, uh, and I have been talking about this. There 
seems to be another example of social desirability bias in the polling again. You know, this was an issue in the campaign. Were people being truthful to pollsters? Well, here's what's really interesting. Trump's numbers in terms of his approval, uh, the numbers in terms of the the, uh, approval of his policies, like the executive order and immigration, they're different. There is a variation, not a huge variation, but a notable variation uh, depending on the mode of poll. So if you're not speaking to a, if it's not a live call or poll, it's a different result than if it's an internet uh, or automated poll. And that's really fascinating that the idea of a social desirability uh, bias, the idea that people are too embarrassed to admit it, that that still might be in play. Well, and so here, here's an example uh, just on on this order, right? Gallup, uh, which, you know, for decades has kind of been the gold standard in polling. They asked, you know, uh, on do you approve or disapprove ordering a temporary ban on entry into the U.S. for most people from seven predominantly Muslim countries? Approve 42 percent, disapprove 55 percent. But then we've got examples of a, you know, a, a Reuters Ipsos poll or a, a uh, HuffPo YouGov poll, and again, these are conducted online that show narrow narrow favorability for uh, this order that, again, sparked all these protests that were widely covered last weekend. I mean, the, the big thing about this is that the, the wording of these questions matters so much in terms of uh, how people react, you know, a percentage point here, a percentage point there, and, you know, when something is divided this closely, all of a sudden... It, it starts to make a big difference. But clearly, you know, there's there's it's not an overwhelming majority on either side of this question. But yet you see, uh, you know, the backlash on the left in the form of these protests, that stuff really gets under Donald Trump's skin. And we've seen it that time and again. We saw it with the Women's March after the inauguration. He was just he took to Twitter to, uh, you know, say, why weren't they, these people should have voted? Why did these people come out to vote? And uh uh, and you saw it also with the backlash against the executive order, uh, where, you know, he clearly th- this type of thing, you know, you see protests and typically like it's easier to generate energy in, in, when you're in the opposition. And so Democrats, like in some ways, have like a little bit of an advantage there. But it's it's sort of atypical to see those protests just get under the president's skin in such a, a visceral way. I mean, you remember Bush and a lot. I'm sure a lot of these same protesters were out there in the Bush years. And Bush was sort of gracious about it. I mean, the 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 one point, the a point of comparison that we saw, maybe not direct with the protest, but uh, with the Cindy Sheehan, the the Gold Star mother who camped outside the ranch in Crawford, and he would say nice things about her. He would constantly be asked about her. So starkly different from Donald Trump and Kazir Khan, who's out there again trying to uh, sort of uh, you know be be a voice of the of the resistance, so to speak. All right, data point number three, that's zero. And that's the GOP's margin for error now on confirming Betsy DeVos, the Republican mega donor who's up for Secretary of Education, after two Republican senators broke into the no column this week, joining every Democrat so far. So, Eli, these, these protesters are looking for Democrats in Congress to give them some sort of tangible result, essentially, of Trump resistance. So why, why is this the nomination that's that's so united Senate Democrats more than any other? Well, I think they smelled blood in the water. I mean, let's just be honest. She really screwed up her hearing. I mean, she betrayed, she revealed that she had no basic knowledge of education policy beyond vouchers and, and, and sort of, you know, the things that she's advocated for in the education reform world. No idea about federal education policy. I mean, it was pretty um, embarrassing when you just played the clips on television. I think Democrats said, okay, this is the weakest appointee. Let's target her. Interestingly, you do talk about that sort of bloodthirst and the, and the progressive grassroots wanting to 
to have a scalp, something to show for this. Democrats can't deliver it for them, right? We're talking about Republicans folding and, and two Republicans uh, doing so on Wednesday. Uh, Lisa Murkowski, the senator from Alaska, talking about this was in response to constituents. And so the, the people who are upset and who are protesting are smartly reaching out beyond their Democratic elected officials, but also to Republicans. The cold water that you have to throw on this is that after these two defections, everybody did the math and say, okay, it's 50-50. Who's going to be the sort of decisive Republican to kill Betsy DeVos? Which other Republican is going to fall off the wagon? And none of them have. You had after that, you had sort of a, a spurt of sort of fence sitters come out and say, actually, we're going to support her. Heller, Portman, uh, you know, Republican, moderate Republican senators who people thought were maybe gettable um, to me. And at the end of the day, they say, well, we're going to support DeVos. And I think that just tells you that so far Mitch McConnell is holding his, uh, you know, Senate caucus together um, sort of out of this greater pragmatism and this desire to not give the president a black eye as much pressure as he puts on them and as much as he has them running from the cameras every day to defend every crazy thing that he does. They want to work together. They want him to sign the things that come out of uh, the Congress. And I think that that is really what is uh, the underlying reason why a lot of these Republicans, even though she sort of embarrassed herself at this hearing, um, even though Mike Pence is going to have to come down and cast the deciding vote. Which has never gonna, happened for a cabinet nomination before. And, and Jeff Sessions is going to have to wait because he, if they lose his vote and he gets confirmed, then they don't have, then the math doesn't work. Um, in spite of all that, I think you see this Republican uh, coalition, it's fragile, but so far it's holding together. And I think that's what the storyline everybody's watching over the next several months is, you know, when the next Betsy DeVos thing comes up and tests the fragility of that coalition, does it hold? Nancy? Yeah, I just think, though, it is remarkable and worth just restating that this is the first time that a vice president has ever had to cast a vote for a cabinet pick. And that's pretty remarkable. And I think, yes, Trump is going to get, you know, um, all, if not the majority of his cabinet picks in their agencies. But a lot of them are going in with, uh, you know, real marks against them. DeVos on her lack of policy. You know, Carson had a great hearing, but he also knows nothing about housing policy policy and will be leading HUD. There have been but he made Sherrod Brown laugh. I think he compared him to he Columbo. He did. And, and Elizabeth Warren voted for him, too. And so that's worth pointing out. But, you know, you also have Steve Mnuchin for Treasury and uh, Representative Tom Price for HHS. There have been a bunch of questions raised about their backgrounds, their wealth, the way that they sort of handled stock picks in the, in the case of uh, Price when he was in the House. And so these people are going to take over these major leadership positions already with a lot of flaws. And clearly the Trump team did like zero vetting of any of these people. So these things are coming up kind of at the last minute. And if there's any problems in any of these uh, agencies that they're leading, don't you know the Democrats are just going to jump all over that? Well, we've reported about the, the lack of vetting and the fact they just sort of picked these people and then said, okay, go defend them get them through. I think part of the, what allowed them to do that is they had the numbers. You know, you, you didn't mention the EPA secretary, who basically has a history of trying to abolish, and, and it's probably going to go in and, and neuter the EPA. These things make Democrats apoplectic, but, you know, the reality is the Democrats don't have the votes to, to stop any of these people. Uh, you see a lot of this sort of manifesting itself in protests and uprisings, sort of spontaneous combustion in the streets with the progressive grassroots, you know, being galvanized like they were not during Hillary Clinton's campaign. But, that does not change the reality on the Hill that right now a lot of these people, whatever their qualifications, are going to get through. Well, and I wonder, Charlie, I mean, to, to this point that, you know, can if 
is is this an example of why this this big energy behind why Democrats are worried that this big energy could fade because they can't necessarily like deliver on you know there's all these all these controversial nominees there's about to be a Supreme Court fight and they're in the minority they simply don't have the power to deliver what these protesters what is energizing these protesters yeah I think what we're seeing is I mean you're you're pretty much articulating uh, Chuck Schumer's dilemma uh, you know, what do you do uh, if you're trying to lead the Democratic uh, resistance right now when you know you don't have the numbers to really uh, stop this thing? You have to pick and choose. you got to figure out what, what hills do, are worth dying for. Uh, who can you t- who can you take down? Who are the you know who are the wounded animals at the at the waterhole? Uh, to go back to my uh, national geographic <laughs> analogies, like who can you take down? Uh, but also, who do your interest groups want you to take down? One of the reasons for all the reasons that made uh, Betsy DeVos vulnerable that, that you guys all laid out, but one of them that we didn't mention is teachers unions hate her. Mm-hmm. So naturally, what better way to carry favor with possibly the one of the most powerful members of of the uh, coalition of the left? Uh, is the teachers' unions. And so naturally, you know, you, you want to uh, work in tandem with them uh, and you have to be practical about it. Uh, but I think ultimately, though, they are sending lots of messages that uh, are a reflection of how enraged the Democratic base is right now. I mean, they're radicalized, they're enraged, uh, and many people don't care. They, they want practicality thrown out of the window. They don't care about the numbers. They just want to see Democrats put up a fight. And a great example of that was Elaine Ch- the Elaine Chow vote. Now, here is the most innocuous vote of them all. I mean, it's a gimme. It's a layup. It is the wife of the Senate Majority Leader. In past years, you know, the, you know that would have been a courtesy. Nobody would have ever dared vote against that. <laughs> the wife of the majority leader, uh, yet who's been a cabinet secretary? Who's been a cabinet secretary? <laughs> yeah, who's qualified? <laughs> who's been vetted? Who's qualified? I mean, there's just no reason to oppose her. But six people did. Six Democrats, and six special Democrats. I mean, it was really revealing. Number one, the biggest and most interesting diss of all came from Chuck Schumer. I mean, that was a direct affront to uh, Mitch McConnell, message sent from Chuck Schumer, would not even vote for his wife, but also revealing were the other people who were on that list, all of the Democratic 2020 presidential field, Kirsten Gillibrand, uh, Elizabeth Warren, Cory Booker, and then a couple of other people that you'd imagine, Bernie Sanders, not a Democrat, but you know he's an independent, and naturally he, you know, you can see why he would do it. And Jeff Merkley of Oregon, who's sort of you know emerging as a you know a progressive rising star, somebody who uh, you know likes to mix it up in these nomination fights. The last time Democrats were in opposition nationally, Merkley was kind of a netroots uh, phenomenon, right? When he was running for Senate in two thousand eight. Yeah, and he's the kind of person, and this is true actually, you know, in both parties, but this is definitely true in Oregon. Jeff Merkley will never lose that seat. The only f- fear he needs to have is from his own primary. You know, that's a pretty progressive state. Uh, just doesn't vote Republican statewide. And somebody like that is never going to be taken down in November. He will always be taken down in a primary. And so it only accrues to his advantage to really fight the administration hard on every nominee. And that's what he's going to do on the Supreme Court. I mean, he's, yeah. he's the one out there talking about a filibuster. Yeah, good point. One last thing on uh, Department of Transportation before we go back to you, Nancy. Uh, according to Carrie Dan of NBC, she tweeted, this is the first time there's ever been a vote against, a, even a single vote against the nominee for the, to lead the Department of Transportation oh, since I it's been that. founded. <laughs> it's all been voice votes or unanimous votes before now. And But here we are in, in 2017. Nancy, uh, what were you about to say? Oh, yeah. I just wanted to add, I, I mean, I think that, you know, Charlie is 
was wise to walk us through all of the energy that the Democrats are putting into this. But I don't want uh, the fact to get lost in this discussion that Republicans are also putting forward a huge amount of effort. You know, the Senate Finance Committee this week, basically the Democrats on it boycotted the hearing. And Orrin Hatch, who's the chair of that committee, who's a pretty even-keeled, like mild-mannered, nice Mormon guy from um, Utah, basically you know, called a second session and broke quorum rules and just pushed through Mnuchin and Price on party line votes. He was so angry. And so, you know, that's really kind of what they have to do. And then even with the DeVos vote, you know, the fact that they have to sequence that before the sessions vote for attorney general so sessions can vote for DeVos, like this is a lot of machinations that they have to go to to get Trump's picks. And I think the question remains like, you know, are Republicans in Congress ultimately going to get what they want from the Trump White House? And they might not. And they themselves are, are putting through a big political fight to set it up for him. Uh, Nancy makes a really smart point there. Uh, and a perfect example of, of what you're saying, Nancy, is how, how much money was spent on Jeff on the Jeff Sessions nomination? Millions of dollars were spent to grease uh, the skits to get him that nomination. Well, and I think this talks, I mean, this all puts pressure on the system, right? It, this puts pressure on the Republicans on the Hill. And so they have to, you know, they have to spend capital. They have to, this strains what, you know, their sort of day-to-day routines when they have to break the rules to do these things. And that takes it, that sort of eats up some of the goodwill they have towards the Trump White House. They are going to need to get something out of that. I've heard this week that there are people inside the White House who are unsure if they're going to get a waiver to confirm the person they put forward to be the trade representative because this person has worked in the past for a foreign government, for Brazil. And even though it's a it's a small thing and, and trade is of huge importance to the president, it's one of those things that he actually cares about a lot, they're not sure they have the political capital left on the Hill to grant that waiver. And so that is, you know, there, there's doubt there. And I just think going forward, the, 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 the Trump White House, you talked about the lack of a mandate, they lost the popular vote, et cetera. They may claim one, but they only have... Uh, they have a finite amount of political capital to spend with 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 the American public and also with with members of Congress. And I think these confirmation battles, you know, they've already been forced to spend some. And this is not going to be where it ends. I mean, the thing that, you know, I've heard a little bit this week out of the White House is, you know, people are disappointed that these cabinet picks haven't been approved faster, but they also haven't, they don't have deputy secretaries in place. They don't have high level political appointees. And so I feel like there's so much focus like, oh, we have to get these 15 cabinet people in. Actually, there are 1,100 Senate confirmed positions that Trump needs to fill. And there's like a huge, huge just underlayer that has to fill out the agencies that they haven't even started to think through yet. And that really, you know, the campaign was understaffed, the transition was understaffed, but now they're in the White House and they're also understaffed. And that could, you know, who knows what will happen? It could slow them down, though. But they've done more to alienate those career government employees than any administration I think we've ever seen, at least that I can remember. I mean, we have, I mean, you know, with, with the State Department and the Descent Channel and Sean Spicer standing at the podium this week and saying, well, if you disagree with this administration, there's the door. I mean, you and need this people. is the the kind of longstanding practice of, right. of foreign service officers signing their names to to letters about policies that they disagree with. There was a very notable one, I think, last summer about uh, against the Obama administration on Syria. Correct. This one has gathered a, a lot more signatures. But. but I'm not I'm not even talking about sort of career civil servants, even high level ones. I'm talking about the political people who will be like, you know, the chief of staff and the deputy to Rex Tillerson right. at the State Department. Like those are people that you know the White House and Cap 
cabinet secretaries get to pick. And, you know, even that is a struggle because the White House wants to pick its own people for that. And the cabinet people want to pick their own people. And it's like everything and else when you say turning the White into House, a turf battle. There is no singular White House because there are, tech, there are really four power centers inside the White House. And who Steve Bannon wants to put in that position may not be the same person who, you know, Reince Priebus, the official chief of staff, wants in that position. So that explains the sort of chaos here and the tension in terms of why we haven't seen these positions filled. But yeah, you, you trickle that down and you talk about the career civil service people. I mean, the bottom line is you need people to run the federal government, even if it's been a talking point, a successful one to say, we want to drain the swamp and we want to shrink government. And we want to do all these things. You know, that's that's great during the campaign. But if nobody's manning these agencies, nobody's working at the State Department uh, or the Pentagon, there are consequences for the country's national security. If nobody's working in the Transportation Department, there are going to be consequences when people can't drive down highways that get fixed. So that's what we're sort of looking at, and that's why it is uh, maybe hard for people to see when they watch the news, but it, you know, that's why this is concerning to a lot of people is the sort of erosion of sort of the – the government class. Eli, uh, one last point as we finish up here. You just mentioned Steve Bannon, the president's chief strategist. And uh, there was a story t uh, today in BuzzFeed about how Bannon has been talking to, uh, in the background, to donors and, and operatives about uh, the 2018 congressional races already. And uh, in particular, there was a, a quote that caught my eye about uh, him apparently telling some donors that uh, uh, the days of Mitch McConnell picking Republican Senate candidates are over. Uh, Charlie, I mean, there there <laughs> are a, a lot. That is ludicrous. <laughs> They're going to help with that goodwill. Up there and down there are a lot. Well, right. I mean, and this all ties back together, right? This ties back together. This whole yep. discussion that we've been having about the Senate and the White House working together and the political capital that both sides have, and then bringing in again our favorite number ten. Those ten Trump state uh, Democratic senators up for reelection in 2018, all of whom you know Republicans are going to need to put forward challengers for, and just kind of like setting up, you know, maybe some battle lines there in, uh, in as for us to watch for the next year and a half. Can you imagine the, the set it takes? I mean, can you imagine the hubris over there right now at the White House? I mean, literally, you're Steve Bannon, like, you know, an accomplished guy. And, you know, yes, he, you know, helped guide Trump into the presidency. But to make a statement like yeah. that about Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell built the Republican Party in Kentucky, in a state that did not have an existing Republican Party. Then he follows through over decades, slowly and gradually amassing power, despite those glasses and having apparently no retail skills at all, to lead the Senate Republicans. And Bannon making statements like that. So first of all... Mitch McConnell's the reason that Donald Trump had a Supreme Court appointment this week. It's just a, a beyond... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, Beyond belief. Right. But but also, here's the other thing. Mitch McConnell hasn't dictated Senate nominees in a very long time. Like that world ended during the Obama era. That world ended in 2010 with the uh, rise of the uh, Tea Party. It's going to end, if it hasn't already ended, in the Democratic Party with the rise of the Bernie and Elizabeth Warren wing because the progressive wing is where all the energy is. Like the, the era when national parties and leaders like Chuck Schumer and Mitch McConnell dictated nominees ended Six or eight years I ago. Would, I would just dispute the fact that, I mean, that, that was true, but I would say that there has been a little bit of a course correction over the last couple cycles, folks like Josh Holmes coming out and sort of making sure that the preferred NRSC candidates do get through those primaries. I think if, if Bannon puts the power and the populism, that, that movement of Trumpism behind alternate nominees, then we're really going to see some fireworks. Yeah, they'll always favor people. You know, uh, they'll always favor somebody with money, the National Party Committees, that is, over somebody who doesn't have money. But, you know, the best function that they they uh, 
that they deliver for the parties is, is they separate the wheat from the chaff. The, there are lots of people that run for office that cannot walk and chew gum, and they would be a disaster if they led a statewide ticket. And that's that's the best function that the National Party Committee serve is to sort of say, hey, we have this really incredibly attractive candidate with an amazing narrative who would be perfect in the Senate and really represent us well. Uh, on the other hand, we have this complete wig nut uh, who's going to burn down the party on the way. And if this person came to the Senate, it would be a disaster for America. Like that is the function that they serve. And they're usually very good at it. You know, they made lots of mistakes. Uh, they don't always get it right. Um, they're not as smart as they think they are. But still, like that is what they they do. All right, everyone. Thanks for being here this week. Thank you very much, Nancy. Oh, thanks. Eliana. Thank you. Ken, thank you as always. Fun time as always. <laughs> Goodbye, Charlie. See you, Scott. Goodbye, Eli. See you next week. Thank you to our listeners. Again, please send in your questions if you have them to nerdcast at politico.com. Please uh, subscribe, rate us, and even write a written review if you want to on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And a big, big thank you to our executive producer, Bridget Mulcahy, our illustrator, Bill Cookman, and Nerdcast researcher and Politico producer, Zach Montalaro, who pulled together a lot of data for this episode. We will talk to you again next week. <laughs>